To this is hardcore podcast. You just heard Bertholdt City. Until I fade away, off the upcoming LP, A Moment in Time. A Moment in Time features three unreleased tracks recorded during the same sessions of their debut LP, When Words Are Not Enough. In addition to new material, A Moment in Time includes both Bertholdt City's out of press seven inches, comp tracks, and two cover songs. And for those who don't know, Bertholdt City is a straight-edge band from Los Angeles featuring Andrew from Strife on vocals along with members of Allegiance, Internal Affairs, and others. You might remember Andrew Strife, our guest, back in, um, what was it, episode 121, I think? 120, something like that. So the pre-orders are up now for a moment in time, and they are available today at WAR. Dash R-E-C, warrec.com. Andrew Strife, great guy, great label, hardcore guy, has a real-life job, realty, still manages to play shows all over the fucking country, and then also with the world with fucking Strife, and then, dude, I did this interview with this motherfucker, and I totally don't even bring up the... Uh, like the superhero band he was in. <laughs> I felt so retarded. But that, thank you for sending in the track. Check it out. Support War Records. Support Andrew Klein. And support real hardcore dudes who put out records. Because they still believe in everything. And that's what it takes. Um, jumping into the usual shit that comes in the front of an episode is that. Once again, we'll discuss that Maddie Watkins is still in Salt Lake City, going under, dealing with doctors. Brandon seems to be reporting quite often through a bunch of different social media channels. And the Year of the Knife fundraisers continue to multiply day by day. So there's plenty of ways to help out and support should you feel inclined to support Maddie and Year of the Knife and everything that happened after their calamity and tragic uh, car accident, well, maybe van accident, as they were leaving their Salt Lake City show. And we just have to hope that Providence will bring her back to us and in the same shape or form over time. That being said, I had been on scoped exposure and a couple people reached out and were shocked that I had already made the decision to replace Year of the Knife on This Is Hardcore Friday, but that's the way this shit works. You know, I love her. She's one of my best friends. So if I can, if I can fucking make the decision, you got to fucking live with it. 
She's not even going to be back in Philadelphia for maybe months. So let's let's just cut to the chase. Fortunately, Year of the Knife will not be playing the Friday of This Is Hardcore because of all these reasons. And replacing them with an up-and-coming metallic band called Hazing Over. So we'll have the updated flyer out there very soon. But yeah, after doing Scoped, a couple people reached out and said some shit, like everyone usually does when they hear some shit, is they retort with some stupid shit. So that should settle that. On to awesome stuff that is happening in Philadelphia. And of course, whose name is up top? Bob fucking Wilson. You know, this is what it takes to continue things going. We've talked about it a bunch of times. But Bob Wilson, you know, he might be the um, the savior, the Philadelphia hardcore scene. Didn't ask for it, but definitely needs. Tomorrow, Saturday, July 15th, at Bonks, Spine, Struck Nerve, Destiny Bond, and Disjoint. If you don't fuck with Spine, I don't know what to tell you. Aggressive, pure, true hardcore from the middle of the goddamn country on Bridge 9. Struck Nerve, X, Marty, William X, retired world-class stage diver who may be a stage diving judge at the World Championships of Stage Diving, a.k.a. This is Hardcore. 2023. I have no idea who Destiny Bond is. Disjoint is the new signing, the new band signed to Bob Wilson's Rebirth Records. So check them out. Real, pure, absolute, no fucking frills, balls of the wall, hardcore, no moshing in the back, no come on motherfuckers. This is pure, true, simple fucking hardcore. And then, you know, because Bob doesn't have enough going on, he's got this whole thing about you know, kicking ass in every format possible. Bob Wilson is starting the This Is Hardcore week off with a show. That's not a pre-show. It's just a fucking show. A Bob Wilson joint, and the emphasis is on oi, August 2nd, Crown Court. Oh, yeah. They're coming to Philly with Violent Way, (laughs) Jive Bomb, Impact Driver, and Doc Martin Sound System. That's a mocha. This is like a warm-up show couple days before This Is Hardcore, Philly Mocha. Going to be a good time. All you 40-year-old fresh cuts who just went bald and decided to buy a Fred Perry. Here's your chance to shine, motherfucker. And if you're some straight-edge kid who is kind of waiting around to see if Rival Mob will get back together, just just be a fake skin head like all the others. Jump right in. You'll fit, you'll fit perfectly. All right? Now, um, he's got some fucking awesome shit. And since we're talking about the Bob Wilson impact on Philadelphia and this hardcore... Bob Wilson joint again. This is Hardcore After Show, The Midnight Moss, Simulacra, Live It Down, and Balmora. Saturday, August 5th. First band is at midnight at Bonks. Be fucking ready. This is Hardcore is coming. We are three motherfucking weeks away. 21 fucking days. You can still get a two-day ticket for Saturday and Sunday. You can still get a ticket for Saturday. You can still get a ticket for Sunday. And that's all I got to say about it. T-I-H-C podcast is how you get a hold of the podcast shit. But you can find us very easily for tickets. Go no further than thisishardcorefest.com to get your tickets for This Is Hardcore. And we're also on Instagram, T-I-H-C Fest on Twitter, Philly HC Shows on Twitter and Instagram, and this is uh, phillyhcshows.com for the website. 
Tons of cool shit. I mean, Bob's got a show October 27th to 28th that I can't say the fucking name of who's playing because it's going to be so fucking crazy. And it just, it's going to be awesome. This whole fucking year is going to be awesome. Got some cool shit ready to announce right around the time of This Is Hardcore. So be prepared. And next week we'll go way deep into This Is Hardcore stuff, but this one is not going to go too deep on that. Um, since we are talking about cool shit happening in hardcore, I want to just shout out Norman Brandon. Norm is the fucking man. Um, gave one of the greatest, deepest reflections on his life in the history of this is hardcore. Um, for those of you who don't know, Norm Brandon currently plays in ter- uh, Thursday. Um, formidable individual in so many regards. Obviously, played in Texas is a reason. For me, I, I his anti-manner fanzine and just fanzines in general, but f- any manner fanzine really just shook my world up and literally one of the most pivotal fanzines to hit hardcore and me at that same time. So hardcore was like, oh, what the fuck is this? And I was clearly, what the fuck is this? Um, kind of let me in that he was going to do something cool, maybe bring it back, and then it dropped. So... There's this new thing out there, or maybe those of you who are not idiots and just doom scroll, but you check out stuff like Substack. Substack.com is a way that you can support, much like a Patreon, but it's a lot of essays and cool shit like that. Uh, Obviously, journalists and different people have Substacks. Well, now, Any Matter Fanzine is back under a Substack, which you can now be a subscriber and support the relaunch and reemergence of again one of the most pivotal hardcore fanzines possible. That's a possible, you know, everyone has their tops, but I, I would put antimatter fanzine in the top, not only because of the way that Norm approached the people, but because of his personal relationships with the people that were on these fanzines and also just the time. And the, it, it struck me knowing that we were going to have a lull as we're, everyone's out fucking doing all the crazy shit we don't have. It's always in the summertime. It's the hardest to get guests that want to come on the show. So I knew I was rolling into a solo one. And um, the good Lord provided just so much content to think about and talk about just in one of the things that Norm had put on the new antimatter substack. And hopefully if you enjoy this, maybe you will be a subscriber and you will support Antimatter and you will support Norm because I'm telling you, in a world of shit posting and bullshit on Twitter and bullshit on Instagram and this fucking threads things just showing up and half the people are already on it, half the people are like, I ain't going anywhere near it. It's good that we're getting back to some form of decency and a place for really well thought out thoughts on shit like hardcore. And who better than Norm to give it to us. So I'm going to give you a little excerpt of some of the stuff. Hopefully Norm isn't like, what the fuck are you reading my shit that I want people to pay to read. But hopefully it'll get you guys energized to become a supporter of his Substack. This is coming off of his Antimatter Introduction Part 2 which you have to subscribe to be a part of. And he starts off with, In the first part of this introduction, I mentioned something about hardcore inflection points. 
those moments of extreme pressure on the scene when you are forced to decide who you are and what the fuck it is that you're actually doing. What I really didn't get into is how I decided to resolve some of those issues for myself back then and how some of these ideas are still built into what I'm trying to do now. In 1993, I knew there were questions about antimatter that I needed to answer first and foremost. Like, how do I really feel about almost everyone I know signing on a major label? How do I really feel about the wide range of music being played on the banner of hardcore that seemed to be drifting further and further away from the thrash and burn energy of agnostic front music today? And how do I feel about advertising in a fanzine? Was it possible to create a model for antimatter that didn't involve me spending every cent I had without it? In regards to the major label question, at least, I think it's clear I chose to err on the side of loyalty to those people whose contributions to the hardcore punk scene left an unimpeachable to me. Every issue of Antimatter featured one artist or another who had made the jump. Bands like Quicksand, Jawbox, Rage Against Machine, Sick of It All, Shudder to Think, immediately come to mind. I was occasionally criticized for this position back then, and honestly, I get it. The more I was scrutinized in ways which I myself had personally been exposed to punk, the more it felt like a blanket labor, major label blackout was inconsistent with my experience. For one thing, the first punk album I ever owned and truly adored was Rocket to Russia by the Ramones, released on Sire Records and distributed by Warner Brothers. If it weren't for the Ramones, I arguably wouldn't be here and it felt like a jerk move for me to pompously walk through the door they opened only to lock it behind me. More than that, I had a personal relationships with a lot of friends, or a lot of bands, who signed major label deals in the early to mid-90s. And I knew that, for many of them, it was a survival strategy, not a get-rich-quick scheme. As someone struggling to get by on $10 an hour working at a health food store in East Village, I didn't have the di- desire to judge. When Shaka Malik, a co-worker of mine at the health store, quit his job to do Orange 9mm full-time after signing the East-West, the only thought I really had was, I'm happy for my friends. And in part two, he says, the major label question is somewhat less pressing today, largely because the majority of the kids in the scene clearly come from hardcore from some version of major label punk from Nirvana, Green Day, Blink-22, to Fall Out Boy, to Chemical Romance, so on. And then this is where we're going to stop for a quick second. Obviously, I'm not going to go further and read content that he has put out. Um, Anti-matter is now in Substack. I'm going to have the link up. I really suggest if you actually enjoy reading people's thoughts and opinions on hardcore and you don't have to listen to people re-quote and retweet and jump in, this is the most fantastic format. And and I do don't, I, I'm not totally sure that there's a ton of other hardcore people on Substack, but I do know that you, know, you can just follow one. Like I follow a guy who has an amazing podcast called Martyr Made, and I follow two or three other people, and now I follow Norm as well. Because what content they provide, I enjoy, and it enriches my life. And story is like specifically little stories like that, at which not stories like just writings from feelings and like that. Really, I still enjoy it. I actually miss the feeling of opening a new fanzine, and and I really think that whether you've never read anti or antimatter fanzine, um and you're young and you're really interested in this stuff, this is a great way to jump back in. And you could probably still find one of the book compilations of the of the uh, antimatter if you guys wanted to, but I think the best way to support Norm is to check out the Substack. That being said, this is a really great place specifically 
to talk about where things have been headed, where things are going, and where Joe, me, what what do I think about it? Why? Because you listen to my stupid podcast, so you must either be bored enough, driving to work, coming from work, doing some work, and just want to listen to someone prattle on, or you actually think that I may have some kind of informed opinion. I can tell you that the best opinions that I've ever really came up with are all born off of stuff, much like what Norm had just referenced was a great book, which I've referenced a few times in interviews, from Dan Ozzy and his book, Sellout, which I'm now going to quietly read a quick little thing to kind of stir things and kind of go off of here from that point. Again, I'm reading from Dan Ozzy's absolutely incredible layout of the selling out or the bands that went from the underground to the majors. And he starts a Green Day dookie. And goes all the way through to about the time where I'm going to bring it up. But you can check it out. Mariner Books put this out. Dan Ozzy has been really involved in a lot of capacities. And his his comments and his research in this is fantastic. So, sell out. The major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore from 1994 to 2007. I recommend it. It was a great listen. And it can stand to go back to and reference and... You know, when stuff like this got peaked and, and Norm had referenced it, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, you know what? This actually sounds great. So this is from the epilogue, which for those of you who don't know is the end of the book. And I think it's a cool way to kind of trigger some other thoughts. Epilogue. Against Me might be the last punk band a major label ever cuts a check for a million dollars. In a way, their release from Sire Records marked the end of an era in the music industry. For more than a decade after a Green Day kicked open the door in 1994. Record companies were willing to take high-risk gambles on promising bands from punk, emo, and hardcore worlds, dumping resources into them, hoping that they may develop into the next breakout stars. But by the time the Florida band made their exit, it was clear that the well had run dry. Not so much against, against me's failure is to cross over into the pop world, marked an official end to the major label experiment with punk. It was that by the time they left Steyr, the industry itself looked unrecognizable from what it had been in the golden years. As digital revolution wreaked havoc on the business, fewer and fewer opportunities could be afforded to bands of their kind. The walls have been caving in on the music industry for a while. Through the early 2000s, the rise of online piracy cutting the sales. Hold on, I might have skipped another page. And numbers and reduced profits. For a while, it appeared that record labels were doomed to be a thing of the past. Eventually, the industry figured out how to make it work so its advantages and started to treat the internet less like a threat and more like an opportunity. Record labels and tech companies began working in tandem to capitalize on digital sales and streaming music, reversing a hemorrhaging business model. The business on the whole stabilized around 2012. Global music sales finally saw an uptick after major after many years of watching lines plunge on just about every sales chart. It wasn't a big increase, in fact, at 0.3% up. It was just about the smallest victory pop open champagne over. Still, even if it's not time for the record companies to party like it's 1999, the New York Times noted, the figures did provide significant encouragement. But even as the ship rated itself, the structural damage had been done, and there were casualties. For starters, the CD was dead. After several unsuccessful attempts to stop the bleeding on online privacy, the updated compact disc technologies like dual disc and DVD plus labels finally conceded it was a losing battle and let the format die off. 
the concept of the album itself was becoming to be a thing of the past as well. The modern content-hungry streaming model prime listeners to consume singles and individual tracks, diminishing the significance of the full-length release. Physical music in general became so antiquated that vinyl LPs began to be marketed by real ta- real ta- <laughs> real, <laughs> retailers like Urban Outfitters as retro relics of a bygone era. The landscape of the music business changed as a result of these seismic shifts. The big six were no longer the big six. They joined forces, disbanded, ate one another for survival in the industry's leanest years. I think we can kind of go and stop right there because it kind of he delves into really deep things that he already touched on throughout the tremendously um, very well-researched and fucking awesome um, read. Again, sell out. By Dan Ozzy. Check that out. But what he's saying is there is that, you know, um, yeah, there was a time when, yeah, there were these major labels really were biting into and just taking the cream of the crop. And then they started having so much success that they were even spending millions per year hoping to catch the next big thing because so many different things had taken off from punk and hardcore. And that's where Norm was talking about is his different friends from various bands who along the way were sighted and scouted and tempted to go over to the dark side and quote unquote, as Dan's book said, sell out. But it doesn't seem like that is the end of the rainbow or the end of the story entirely. And I'd like to now touch on something else from the library that keeps my brain up at night thinking of all the different reasons why I may be completely wrong or some validating points from time to time. My next reference is actually not really from, I mean, it's a book and it's, it's, it's also deep, but it's initially I purchased it because it's a lot of street art and about the punk and hardcore subcultures. This is called visual virtual by David a Ensminger. And it is a badass looking book with a lot of cool artwork. If you're like an art, or if you're like an old flyer head, or you like it, want to get involved and look at old flyers, you know, this is the way to go. This was actually pressed by the University Presses in Mississippi. And um, pretty badass shit. Um, very, very punk rock. Back all the way to the roots. And I, I just wanted to read this because this is kind of funny that this is years before the point that we're going to talk about or what we're talking about now where the exploitation of the punk rock scene is what the major record labels are up to. This was the end time or closing years for many first generation punks who saw the original burst of savvy and weird loony creativity give way to, to martial, uniform, blitzcore beats and heavy machismo stances. These trends, this migration of punk into suburban regions, and a resulting escalation of violence. We're not restricted to the United States. Across the Atlantic, the issues, as retold by Cherry Vanilla keyboardist Zeka Escobar in Punk to Punk 77, an awesome zine, were the same. There were alcohol-fueled violence, but most of it was not the original punks. It was mostly from the suburban kids who came later and wanted to be punker than that they were. The ones that didn't fake sticking safety pin, uh, safety pinks through their cheek, but actually did because they didn't have quite figured out how you could do that. Those suburban hooligans who came later were 
aggressive. Every region from Minneapolis, which is the replacements Husker Du, to Phoenix, JFA, Meat Puppets, had seemingly different trademark music style by the mid to late 80s, was seemingly homogenized by commercial forces. Just as Chromax, Bear Brains, DRI, and Gangrene tasted the brink of success with audiences outside the punk ghetto. One has to remember the stranglehold that TV had on the same generation, a, commuter, a commu- consumer magic wand that, according to Barbara Krugel, makes a difference the enemy. It focuses on the moment, not the process, the individual, not the scene, the figure, and not the body. Current events, national struggles, sexualities are created, renewed, and canceled like the sitcoms. The greatest TV network of all was MTV, branded by Grail Marcus as the stupor of reification. So ugly, so directively productive and aesthetic and moral shame as to be fundamentally obscene. That was a quote from 1987. If hardcore was something sometimes reactionary, inflexible, overwrought, and its own worst sense, it was partially due to the gripping siege mentality. As Pusshead, who told Heart Attack Zine, even in the early 1980s conservatism about punk and hardcore was already set in. Clear definitions of what was punk or hardcore in terms of style, content, dress, rules. Something was actually defining itself at the time and relatively new. Yet Vic Bondi hints in his liner notes of what included with Core, the Articles of Faith reissue album from Germany's, uh, Germany's Blitzcore Records. Hardcore was about an honor code that overlapped in the community building. The strategy insisted that the people, especially teenagers, could not be bought or sold and that the consumer society could not easily absorb youth rebellion, especially one that, at least on the surface, so consistently pitted against the powers that threatened to squander it. Hardcore was a translucent answer to a reckless, dishonest time. Insist, and Bonnie insists, which nothing is more unwanted than unwanted truth. The, senate, the sentiment appears wholeheartedly reinforced by the Riot Girl movement's self-determined and vigorous grassroots feminism in the mid-1990s. And it kind of goes on for a little bit before we get where they start talking about it's a community and a family and it's a movement underground with no mecca built up on paper and um yeah that specifically was interesting to read because at you know we're, we're hopping around here you know what norm was talking about was seeing the beginnings of this commercialization of hardcore and be as he as a diy author or writer they would call it now then it was a fanzine writer but you know now they can make it fancy now he can say hey i wrote he did write a book it's available on amazon and he did write this awesome fanzine that changed a lot of the the way people would think about hardcore in general and gave great conversations that people could argue about for decades because we're still talking about it now and then we talk about dan ozzy's book how he just said hey yeah right around 2012 the end of the, the cd is here and you don't see any more commercialization or big, huge checks going out from their major record labels to these people from this underground scene. And then you hear um, different people who were writing at the time just basically explaining that hardcore had shifted away. Our hardcore had shifted away from its punk's early leanings, which a lot of people say in these different books, if you're really not hip to this or not understanding where I'm coming from, especially younger guys, it's like they'll always say that punk was urban, hardcore was suburban, and that when when punk went hardcore punk in America, 
There was elements that just came for violence, just came for the party, just came for the chaos, and wasn't really there to be part of a movement, part of a scene, part of the entire thing that was more aligned with stuff like, you know, like the freak out the squares shit that was really an earlier part of the whole process, which eventually get us back to where Norm was talking just two days ago on his little Substack. And then because I obviously collect books and love reading and love the people that get these opportunities, give great quotes. I was thinking about the end of the New York hardcore book that Tony Rettman wrote NYHC, New York hardcore 1980 to 1990, where at the end of the different, this book is really a weird, right? Because it's pages and pages of different bands and different situations. Depending on who wrote the answer, you can get such a variety of different people, but they might write a paragraph, they might write two sentences. So you get people different. It's kind of like you get a bunch of different people from New York Park from 1980 to 1990 just giving a sentence or two or two sentences or a whole paragraph on a specific band or a specific topic or a time. And I remember at the end of the book, there were people that were talking about not only the stuff that Norm was talking about, but, you know, just in general, the change of hardcore. Now, we're talking now in three separate ways. I was I was talking about the stuff that I just uh, cited from the visual virtual, which is, you know, kind of where we're getting at where Walter says, Walter Shruffles of Gorilla Biscuits and every other cool-ass band, including Quicksand, I remember touring with Gorilla Biscuits to Europe. Someone gave me a Nirvana bleach. And I was like, wow, Fugazi was happening at the same time, and it was more interesting to me. There was something that seemed more adult that I wanted to grab onto. I wanted to write lyrics that were more inwardly focused and more pondering. I was no longer in high school, so I wondered what was next for me. I started a project in the spring of 1989 with, Moon, with named Moondog with Luke, the drummer of Gorilla Biscuits, and Tom Capone for Beyond. That was a step... That was just one step towards quicksand that came along because of a tape got out of me singing the new Gorilla Biscuit stuff to show Siv how the words fit. We got a lot of compliments, even though I didn't think it was very good, but I thought maybe I should sing something too. I wanted to do something scary, but also poppy. And then, um, for those of you who don't know, there's a time in 1980s, 90s, I've talked about different people on the show where... The guys who have been kicking ass and doing it and writing some of the greatest New York hardcore records and toured and did shit that nobody had done yet kind of got over it and wanted to try something else. And that's what Norm is talking about. Norm's talking about when the people in hardcore are feeling like an emotional life paradigm shift towards creating different music and then they're doing it. And then obviously, you know, who better than Walter to get right in the crosshairs of a major record label deal with Quicksand. I mean, I don't know, for those of you who didn't know, because they were young, the F- Quicksand headlined the first Warp Tour. They were on the big, they were the last band on the big stage, at least in the Philadelphia dates. I don't know if they had shifting headliners, but Quicksand was the big band when Warp Tour started in 1995. So you got to think about, like, this is all coming from this hardcore scene that started so much, so many ways differently in so many different places, but just kind of organically blended in together. And that's what the guy was saying was organically, you could have a band like the Meat Puppets 
We could also have a band from the Midwest sound so differently, but it was all in, in included in hardcore. Like the Meat Puppets don't sound anything like Die Cruisin' or you know Husker Do or Crozier Conformity in North Carolina or Negative Approach or the Necros in Detroit, and yet it was all considered hardcore. And that's more of what you know gets touched on. You know, later on, when when Norm was saying about you know just what what stands to be hardcore at the time when these bands are getting signed in the '90s, are they are did they you know they sound dramatically different than Agnostic Front and Youth of Today? One more cool thing from the archive, the library, the stuff that stoke some th- thought. And just not just from me rattling on and um and ahs and thinking it as I'm going with this one. This is from a book that was a gift from a friend. Um, Thunder's Mouth Press. Stephen Colgrave and Chris Sullivan wrote Punk, the definition record of a revolution. And a really badass picture of Sid Vicious on the cover, which, you know... This is like the the great era, and there's so many cool pictures and cool stories. It's kind of like a great storybook, also awesome pictures, and the afterward still stands with me. And I almost copied this onto a fanzine when I was thinking about doing another fanzine, but then got lazy realizing that I also didn't have the time or the money to do the kind of fanzine I would want without advertising, which is something Norm was also talking about in his introduction. Um, anyway, let's go. 25 years since its birth and punk is still at, of interest to millions of people all over the world. At its height, it had a huge national profile in the UK, less so in the USA, and was definitely an experience for the baby boomers had, who had missed out on the hippie trip. Accepted wisdom is that punk had last, has a lasting impact on the world's fashion, music, and youth culture. This is too simplistic. In many ways, the year 2001 isn't radically different from 1976. Most clubs the world over play chart music, just as they did in 76. The high... They... The only difference is that they call it, uh, they now call it house music. The people's approach to the style is also similar. We still have high fashion victims and high street copycats. As a result, there is no underground. Style magazines once encouraged new ideas. Now they exist purely for profit. So the information they deliver is in the middle of the road, aimed at everybody from bankers to bus drivers. They've lost their cutting edge. DJs have become the new rock stars, spinning out long self-indulgent sets that all sound the same. In an effort to retain their superstar status, they concentrate on keeping the crowd happy rather than breaking new ground, a recipe for blandness. Culture in all its form is marketable commodity. As soon as a new music is heard, it hits one of the magazines, it becomes a trend. Manufactured bands get to number one on the charts. Boy bands rule the roast. Nothing is very different from the 70s. Only the names have changed. For the Osmond and Jackson to be substituted by Boyzone and Westlife. The big difference is that punk did make the news and move the establishment in ways that the youth culture today does not. It has set its participants apart and gave them membership in a radical movement. Nowadays, trends have replaced movements. Everybody, especially parents, hated its style. Today, parents and child children dress the same. Punk is important and will remain so because of the first and lasting genuine youth counterculture. Although the hippie movement had a political context, it was not single-mindedly anti-established punk. The older generation found peace and love philosophically 
relatively unthreatening, but they could not find nothing redeeming or understandable about punk. For this reason, it was far more effective at challenging the status quo. Observed with hindsight, punk has seemed to have very short-lived experience in counterculture, but in many ways even more relevant today. The original participants interviewed for this book all share a sense of independence and innovation, a free-spirited creativity which are absent from today's youth culture. For many people, punk represented an opportunity to think for themselves and seriously question the prejudices and elitism of the older generation. Did this in wonderfully mad and unique way. There's no grand plan or united manifesto. It didn't even give itself a name till it was almost over, and no one ever claimed to be a part of the movement. Analysts and commentators on the counterculture have found all sorts of hidden agendas and subplots. We have not. We have set up to compile this book at one simple aim, to reveal the spirit and attitude of the time. We want to celebrate the creative madness that inspires so many kids to stop by being passive consumers of music and actually get out and do it or write about it in fanzines. Now, I can go one further with this. This is a fucking fantastic read in general. Also, I'll have a list and I'll take pictures of all these books and we'll do something, link them if you guys want to get them. But now that goes even before what we're talking about. And I, I'm jumping around because I, I kind of like the idea of, you know, here a reference here. Then you go back and you see this and either counters it or supports it. Overall, today, today's hardcore scene to some could legitimately be seen as selling out. If we're going by like the standards of the late 80s, early 1990s, even in the mid 90s, like the people like Heart Attack Fanzine and Kent McClard, you know, even like there was a time when, you know, Maximum Mock and Roll, if you had a a fucking, uh, what is it called? Like the UPC, the Universal Product Code. If you had a barcode on your record, they wouldn't fucking review your record. Because it was too, it wasn't punk rock. Because it was it had a UPC on it, you know that there was, there's always these people that will determine by some bizarre, whatever happenstance ideologies that they've pulled apart from all these different things. What is and what isn't hardcore? What is and what isn't punk? What is and what isn't selling out? And the interesting thing, and it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? So like. And I every time you use a band name on a podcast, someone thinks that you're directly saying this guy in this band. I'm not saying this guy in this band, but I'm going to use Knock Loose because they have a large fan base and that kind of reference point gets a lot of people all in the same barrel. The Knock Loose world, they may not even know what the Sex Pistols are. They definitely don't really get the whole fanzine thing probably. And so they're really not going to be the ones completely concerned about selling out. In fact... They're the side that I would say doesn't give a fuck if there's a barricade or not at a show. They're the side that doesn't give a fuck what the band is doing because they're the fan of the band. And and they're not really they're not even really in in interest in being a, like a counterpoint in the culture today. They just like the shit they like. They you know, whether they drink or they don't drink, they're at the show. And they're they're a supporter and they're a fan of a band. Or maybe they're a fan of a group of bands. You know, but there's no set hierarchy for them. There's no set principle of rules and status quo and things that they don't support. I mean, in general, everybody has political leanings, especially from the ages of like 16 to 26 now. I think they're overly saturated with political leanings. But what I'm saying is like they don't have the counter culture ideals 
that you could uh, ascribe to the late 70s into the late 80s hardcore people. It, it doesn't go with the music. The music's the music. It stands alone. And so if Knock Loose is on the biggest record label in the world, no one cares because half of those people who go to them things also go to the Slipknot shows and all the big shows. So there's no deference between a Knock Loose show and a Slipknot show. And, and that's where that stands. That's why there's a reference. Nothing to do with the band. But that's like, you know, one side. But then you also still have people out there like legitimately saying, I'm only going to house shows and I don't want to even, you know, bother going to a club. And, you know, there still is in tons of parts of this country, places where there's not even a house. It's like a fucking outside a barn, skate ramps. Like there's all this unidentified, lesser known, scattered to the wind, punk chaos, punk by proxy that there's not a huge community, so to speak, like tens of thousands, there's, you know, tens or hundreds of kids, maybe a thousand in the entire city, you know, but they're, they're still able to scrabble together gear and scrabble together some bands and their world is so much more, more removed than the entire other spectrum over there. You know, like they, they would never think of a band of theirs getting to the point of, you know, maybe even leaving town, maybe even going forward and releasing a real release on a real recognized record label because that's not the end game. And um, this this whole thing that I'm getting into just gets back into the stuff that Norm would eventually say that I didn't bring up. It's like we talk about like what is selling out and you know like what does that really mean? And, and I I gotta say that at 43, I don't know what selling out really is anymore because the bar moves so fucking different with the internet and in the, in the post pandemic world that we exist in where a bunch of bands from the bay area are fucking giant with a like giant in the sense of they have a huge audience of people who were never a part of the hardcore scene who when they show up whether it's in Philadelphia or Tampa, Florida, or New Jersey, they're going to draw people who had nothing to do with our scene the days before they they closed everything down. And, and that's just a bizarre thing. And that's not the, there's a lot of anomalies in the in the recent past. But that's the most notable is that the pandemic restart gave life to this petri dish of humans who were captive audience, young, needing something, and, and grasped onto this raw energy that they could only be attached to through the music that was on the, whether it was the TikToks or the YouTubes or the Hate Five Sixes, and that f- helped formulate some form of rage, which, I mean, if I was, you know, between the ages of 16 and 26 at the time of the goddamn pandemic, I would have lost my fucking mind. So I can understand how these people gravitated through social media to these kind of things. But that's the stuff that kind of makes it hard to have the same kind of conversation that was being had 30 years ago in 1993 when the bands from the hardcore scene, and we're, we're not talking about the hardcore scene of the 1980s or the, ni- the mid-1980s. We're talking about the hardcore scene that had slowly started to move away from the hardcore scene. Because of violence, because of venues getting shut down, be, because of just feeling like 
musically as musicians, what had they had already touched on had been done. And wanting to touch and be a part of a growing group of bands, which unironically came from the same underground, just a different tree. Um, for those of you who have not put two and two together yet, the best way to do it is to check out the amazing book from about SST SST Records, which is Greg Jinn and the and the reason why Black Flag's a whole thing, like that alone. If you if you just if you just take some time and check that out, your 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 entire world gets thrown around because over the course of Jim Rutland's book Corporate Rock Sucks, he takes you on the birth of one of the greatest punk bands in the history of the world, Black Flag, and everything that they did for the growing U.S. hardcore scene of the early 1980s, only to watch the same SST records basically being the breeding grounds for all these bands like the Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets and stuff that would eventually would be, you know, the biggest shit of the 1990s. So I'll say it again slowly. One of the most important hardcore record labels ever. And Greg Jinn and the whole team are responsible for so many different things that I'd have to do an entire podcast like four hours long of everything that those guys did as pioneers to make hardcore what it is. They also happen to be the the byway and the railroad to release music that would then completely captivate an entire another decade and even into the probably the two thousands with, you know, the Sonic Youth, the Nirvanas and all this other stuff. It's fucking mind blowing that again, even though it wasn't hardcore technically, all those people were going to the shows, they knew the fucking bands. Or as our friend uh, Mike Gitter had said on his episode, which we still have to do in episode two Hardcore won because the guy from Scream, Dave Grohl, won a Grammy. And and it just fucked me up, you know? And also the fact that the dude from the Germans also has a Grammy just for being in Nirvana. You know, like, these are the, you know, OG hardcore people, yet they end up in the 90s and the 2000s being huge commercial artists. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. So when we talk about, like, what selling out is... Today, selling out is so, you know, it's it's in its own universe because of a lot of things. And a lot of it goes back to why I reference sellout. By saying, like, there, there really is a ceiling limit to how far you can get as a music band. Like, yeah, I'm sure everybody, I don't know any of the dudes in the band name from Slipknot. I'm sure that they probably don't have to work. But I don't think that they could stop working for the rest of their lives, like a kid rock or someone could do, you know, like they, they, they probably got enough money, but they still have to perform. And, and that's, that's really the causality and the, the, the fallout of what Dan Ozzy was talking about in the sellout, which is what I referenced. And, and that's really where I think this goes. Like, unless you put all your eggs in one basket and you become a giant phenom, insane, like, multi-million dollar rich and even then those you know you're hanging around with the wrong people or doing the wrong things you could blow multi-million dollars pretty fucking quick but as far as hardcore punk shows there really isn't selling out per se now there's definitely opportunities to say that there's bands that have 
taken, and I've said it many times, taken the opportunities afforded to them by playing small hall shows. And that was even as true as when I first started going to shows. I mean, before I was even like what I would say, like no, like a known hardcore kid, you know, I saw Corn open for Biohazard and House of Pain. And then we'd later see Corn play at J.C. Dobbs with uh, the opener was Lords of Brooklyn and the middle band was Sugar Ray. And half of our neighbor, actually everybody from our neighborhood went to the show. So I think all of us still have our corn shirt. And, you know, it's just a part of what happens when a band is growing in. And it's the early 1990s. And then to the the mid-1990s, they were even throwing um, stuff like Cold Chamber was playing uh, like a show at Trocadero with Maximum Penalty. And that had a lot to do with management people who were involved in New York Hardcore who had the friendships in New York hardcore, but were trying to make the new metal stuff happen. And they were just throwing shit at a wall and seeing what stuck and what went. I mean, even Isaac, I think in like 1998 toured with vanilla, actually Scarhead did a tour with vanilla ice once like the hardcore has a much harder time grasping huge pieces of the commercial music thing. So this generation really doesn't get involved in the selling out, but then there's the, the slice of pie, smaller versions of selling out, you know, like the band that is okay playing the big venue that has a barricade. Cause that's part of the business. The band that stops tweeting all the time about merch cuts because they realize they have no fucking control of it. And playing in big venues like that through the corporate companies helps our band grow. So they just go along with it. There's, there's thousands of ways to cut this cake and say, you know, this fucking guy's a sellout and this guy's not really a part of it. And it's so much different than what Norm was saying. Like, you know, like where someone could get one record deal and that's it. The game is changed. Now, that's not saying that people from hardcore or the bleh, word of the year, ick word or other um, metalcore haven't, can you know, canceled having a real job and just do the tour thing. But, you know, it remains to be seen if they're going to become giants or if they're going to be in their, you know, late 30s being like, fuck, I got to really actually get a job now. This whole metal band thing didn't work out. But it needs to be said that in this time, in 2023, we're actually not lucky, but it is good to not have a constant you know, bar thrown in front of people. Like, oh, well, if you do this, then you're selling out. Or, hey, if you do this, you're selling out. Because there's so many different goofball things that I think have changed as we changed out from 2019 into the bizarro world of the two years of the pandemic where anything went and then everything came back and now there are bands who never played shows and then have huge world audiences Bands who can sell potentially six figures in just merchandise to people who have gone to zero local shows ever in their lives. The the idea of the world commerce and the internet just allowing the high-speed engagement with these bands without any thought process to anything we just heard. Whether it was from the visual virtual book about you know the beginning of hardcore and then the way that the new punks... The, the old punks gave way to the hardcore because, you know, they were really trying to be even more punk than the other people. Like, these folks have no grasp of this stuff. One thing that I do really wanted to touch on before I close this out is, like, 
it really needs to be said. And, you know, no one that I'm aware of. I mean, my daughter went to her first show as an infant, but does that really count? I don't know. But most people who are listening to this can't say that they aren't guilty of being exposed to a underground music, whether it be a metal or punk at this stage. But, you know, primarily we're getting eventually getting into hardcore when we talk about this. Anyone who were primarily the first bit of music that got them into what is hardcore punk didn't come from some giant commercial entity. And, and, you know, when we talk about all these different people, the old New York hardcore guys from Queens, they love the Ramones or they love Kissed. In D.C., everybody liked Wayne Kramer and obviously famously Ian, um, Ian from D.C. loved Ted Nugent. These are giant commercial rock stars. Now, obviously, Ian and the DIY and, and, and his incredible legacy with Minor Threat and Fugazi and his record label, Discord Records, would, yeah, they're they're certifiable, legit hardcore, legit DIY, legit unwavering, truly punk rock. But, you know, it says something when these guys who hold these punk rock values, they can straight face be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Ted Nugent was the reason how I got into this thing. And that ties into what Norm said with the Rocket to Russia record, which came out on Sire Records. So I guess to loop this all back, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who is selling out or why, because right now what they're selling isn't going to afford them the kind of ridiculous nonsense lap of luxury that you were sold if you were like me and watch these heavy metal videos with Motley Crue and Kiss and all the shenanigans of the late 80s into the early 90s. Even though we know now most of them dudes pissed all their money away and wish to God they didn't get hair... Pl- um, Wish to God they didn't have to get hair plugs and, you know, maybe got on that TV show like Brett Michaels did as well because it all fell away from them. You know, most of us found hardcore through a means of, you know, hopscotch. Oh, I heard this record, then I heard this, but no one's coming out of the box and the first thing they're hearing is Agnostic Front or Minor Threat or Die Cruising or any of these things. And so to have the argument about selling out is a little silly at this stage. And when you have kids who all over the world are just happy supporting bands and happy pushing what they, not even pushing, but pursuing and supporting what they see as this, whether it's revolutionary or exciting, or maybe it's just an outlet. That's really where it comes down to being just a completely positive. Younger people are still able to find interest because now, you know, we're on the verge of 45 years or so of hardcore punk. And yet, somebody who's 15 is seeing this shit for the first time. Maybe they're not seeing Ramones. <laughs> maybe they're not seeing Sex Pistols. Like, this is the coolest shit ever. Maybe they're seeing Knock Loose. Or maybe they're seeing the Tsunamis or, you know, the Veins and all this other stuff courtesy of Hate Five Six. And they'll be like, this shit is so cool. This is, you know, so counter-revolutionary. Like, and that's really where we're at. I think the speed of everything has really taken over to the point where selling out, as as all the different references said, it's, it's a completely separate world today. So you don't hear that conversation as much. To me, I think as long as you hold the values, the values are a different thing. You know, I can only speak to my own values. I won't ascertain or assess 
other people's. For me, the importance of what I do is to continue to help the things in hardcore that I like succeed and pursue while maintaining the reality that I'm getting older and that, you know, it's not, you know, and I I was on the Scope Exposure podcast and you heard me say, and they even had the little words like, Philadelphia hardcore scene is not the byproduct of just my labor and my work. You know, we are many generations in and now Bob Wilson, Ben Stuckey, and anyone coming forward are going to eventually eclipse the works, even of even as I continue, because they're in the forefront. You know, I don't. I'm not going to fade into the back anytime soon. But I have to recognize that where my place is, continue on what I do, and not try to step on anybody's toes or limit the possibilities of what the future can be. Because these are the folks that are going to carry the future of Philadelphia hardcore. Aside from that. I've learned years ago. I learned years ago in Europe, standing on some dumb stage in front of tens of thousands that none of these people knew what we were doing and were just there for a rock concert that I wasn't playing in front of people that were into the band. Now, two days later, we played a show in a small room in Essen, Germany, and we have that feeling. And I was like, this is what I like. I like when I know the kids, and I, or at least I know the kids know us, and we're not just playing to a sea of drunk fucking people regardless of the financial thing because I knew I'd probably make more money and have a better living and a better life structure just being involved in Union Concrete which is what I still do almost 20 years later from when that epiphany came when we were talking about dude we should be doing all this and I'm like I don't really think it's going to ever make a difference in our living and I'd rather do the tours when we could do them and still have my fucking day job and that is the anchor point of my values is that I want to do hardcore and I want to make sure that the things I do are the things I like to do and the things I believe in doing and I book bands that I support and I book bands that not only I I don't know everybody in all these new bands so I can't say I believe and I know all these people because I don't and actually with the booking agents and managers and all these different people there's less people in the newer bands that even approach me to have conversations may say thank you at the end of the night And that's about the most it is. But I still believe in the work that I do is enough to keep me coming home from work after I got up at 5.30 and I got home almost at 5 o'clock to do a podcast or to do some emails so the show happens. That's that's where my value set is. Am I doing the stuff that I want to do? Is the stuff that I'm involved in making me happy? Is it good for Philadelphia hardcore? And that's where my value set. But I can't say someone else's value set isn't different. And I don't begrudge anybody whose mentality is, well, if I book enough shows and I make enough connections, I'll be able to move up and maybe I'll get a job at AEG or Live Nation. If that's your goal, God bless you. You want to be a part of the music industry? Man, God bless you. It's it's never been something that I was ever even intrigued of like, oh man, I wish I could be a part of it. In fact, it kind of bums me out to be so aware of the evil that goes on and how different people in hardcore have elicited its evil powers to their good and then they stand there and they you know proselytize hardcore and everything great but I digress that's their path and their values and I have my own I think hardcore is in a very awesome place 
if it wasn't in an awesome place, I would either try to help it or I would move on to something like fucking, I don't know, Hobby Horse Championships. Now, I just saw that on my boy Justin Suburban, who probably doesn't listen to podcasts, posted on Instagram and Twitter, and I had to like look into what the fuck Hobby Horses were. Now, I, um, my values are pretty simple. I want to do the things I want to do for the reasons I want to do them. And I don't want to do something I don't want to do. I don't want to work with a band that I don't agree with or a, a band that I know doesn't really want to be here and just wants to use the shows as a stepping stool to one day just be behind a barricade or hanging backstage till the 30 minutes they got to be on stage. Like I, That's not the stuff that I'm really into. I've worked with bands that have ended up being that way, and I've worked with bands that would never want to be a part of it. And, and I don't care too much about what other people do unless it directly affects me. I think that's a lot of what most people would say. I don't really care what they do. It's not what I want to do. That's a big difference from the 90s hardcore scene and even the 80s hardcore scene when everybody had an opinion about what everybody else was up to in some kind of effort to outpunk the other person. I suggest you support Antimatter Substack. I suggest you support real hardcore shit like Rebirth Records that Bob Wilson does, War Records that Andrew Klein does, Triple B, Sam, he's done some fantastic shit. Um, Richie has never ran, never will records. I mean, the list goes on and on days records, streets of hate records. There's in a time when there's big labels doing big things and there's thousands of t-shirts being sold for, for bands, of kids all over the world. There's still these guys who get up just like I get up and they go to work and they come home and they're just excited to release a record. Support those guys. Not to say don't support the bigger guys, but support the people that you know who bust their ass in different conventional ways in hardcore who are now taking money that they earned outside of this and reinvesting it and putting it into new bands. That's an exciting thing. I think, you know, Norm, it's not that selling out is on everybody's lips. I think it's more or less today's hardcore scene is about instead of saying, oh, this guy sold out. It's like, no, let's support. Let's 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 push positive energy into positive people doing things. And 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 again, I think positive used to be a nasty word for the tough guys because they don't want to say, oh, well, I don't want to be positive. But no, anytime you do something for your friends or something to support your friends, that's a positive thing, regardless of its connotation that you may one day wake up and know all the words to you today record. That's beside the point. The point is, is that to do positive things, you need people who want to keep hardcore going in the right direction. And that means you have to do this positive thing and support them. So that's what I suggest you do and not worry about all this selling out stuff. If you want to worry about it, buy a bunch of books and read about it from all different eras. Um, again, I touched on um, the anti-matter substack, and I referenced just four books, and everybody kind of came from a different time and a different perspective, or maybe supported different ideas. That's the stuff that I really get interested into now is reading back on what people thought or reading books about shit I'd never even heard of or just hearing great stories or going back into the old magazines and instead of being so thrown off by the PC politic bullshit of heart attack and MRR, actually reading some of the things and kind of getting a better cultural grasp in my 40s of what I couldn't understand in my teens. Um, we're going to have better guests not me just prattling on in the next couple weeks thank you for listening for about an hour of me just rattling on t-i-h-c podcast um thank you for the support there'll be liner notes 
Thank you for supporting This Is Hardcore. This is going to be a fantastic year. It is three fucking weeks away. And, um, yeah, thank you. We'll talk again. Bye-bye.